We've got in mind what we've got to do. We know we're for the slaughterhouse. Ordinary Seaman Joe Murray, Hood Battalion, 63rd Royal Naval Division, The Somme, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 29. Adieu, La Somme. No, no real admin notes this time around. Um, we're at 88 reviews, so thank you guys so much. Um, and just keep them coming. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment. Just rate it real quick on iTunes. It, it puts us out there much, much more but to a much broader audience. That's about it. So let's just get into it. October of 1916 and the events within it had largely decided the Battle of the Somme. On the Somme front itself, the four attacking Allied field armies had seen only local successes in the ocean of chalky mud that was the battlefield now. Artillery duels continued, attacks over ruined villages, Trenches, shell holes, and machine gun nests went on for days. Men continued to perish by the thousands in muddy fields and water-filled shell holes from Tikval to Lesar and to La Maisonette and Scholn. But by the end of the month, it was clear the offensive was bottoming out. French Army Commander General Joseph Joffre and British Expeditionary Force Commander General Sir Douglas Haig weren't ready to give up on the Battle of the Somme. For his part, Joffre wanted a continuation of the Allied General Offensive. On October 24th, the French had delivered a mighty counterstrike in the killing fields north of Verdun, suspending the transfer of German units from there to the Somme. In the east, the Germans were devouring the ill-prepared Romanian army, as well as beating on the Russians. So whatever could be done to prevent any transfer of men and materiel to the east would be helping those allies there. For Sir Douglas Haig, the reasons were more narrowly focused. He wanted to continue pushing on the Somme in order to secure the best possible positions before the winter set in. He also wanted to secure one more win before he went on to the next Allied war conference, to have one more win under his belt before he met with his fellow force commanders to discuss strategy for 1917. Haig literally said words to this effect in a meeting with Reserve Army Commander General Sir Hubert Goff. Lastly, on account of the Chantilly Conference, which meets on Wednesday, he counted in his diary, the British position will doubtless be much stronger, as memories are short, if I could appear there on the top of the capture of beaumont Amel, for instance, and 3,000 German prisoners. It would show, too, that we had no intention of ceasing to press the enemy on the Somme. Haig, though, did mention in his diary as well that the, quote, Necessity for a success must not blind our eyes to the ground in weather, end quote. If Haig wrote this in to show to posterity that he was a concerned commander or not, it doesn't really matter. The ground and the weather were increasingly dictating the terms of the battle. It was mud, mud, mud everywhere. Joined up with dropping temperatures and seemingly ceaseless days of raw October and now November rain, the Somme was congealing itself upon men's memories the same way its mud congealed to boots, clothing, weapons, wagons, and food. The mud was getting so deep in many areas that the lone traveler faced the possibility of slipping into a muddy shell hole and slowly drowning alone. Therefore, Traveling in pairs was recommended. Of course, the usual dangers of snipers, massive shelling that continuously fell about, and stray bullets all remained. 
It all added up to a routine that could and did drive men mad. We were never dry or clean, Lieutenant Mealing of the 61st Division's Royal Field Artillery recalled, as taken from Peter Hart's Psalm, The Darkest Hour on the Western Front. Our food was always cold, gritty, out of tins, bread generally wet, nothing ever appetizing. The noise of gunfire was practically continuous, if not in our immediate neighborhood, then up or down the line to the north or south of us, so that the nerves were constantly stretched, listening and assaying continuously or subconsciously the depth and nearness of shell bursts. The ground was an enemy to both sides, although less so to the Germans as they had less of the devastated battle area to traverse. But once they too were in the front line, the Somkemfer was subjected to the same misery as Tommy and Franz opposite him. German reserve Lieutenant Fraser was posted in the area of the Bois Saint-Pierre-Va, across from the French 6th Army. As recorded in Jack Sheldon's German Army on the Somme, he recounted, Rain. It rained every day. The route forward led through Manancourt, which was constantly under fire, then ran from here to the front through woods and along tracks in total darkness. A journey which should have taken 20 to 25 minutes cost two to three hours. With each step, men sank literally up to their knees in mud, of which there were several types. The most bearable was thin mud, because it was less of an obstacle than the thick, clinging sort. Passing this latter type demanded great care if boots were not to be lost, something which actually happened to some of our comrades. Those who had thus far not learned to curse and swear certainly did during this approach march. There was not one square meter of the Bois Saint-Pierre-Va which had not been plowed up and turned over by shell fire. So it is no wonder that the constant rain turned everything into a foul slush. No trees, not even a branch, survived to indicate this had ever been a wood. There were corpses and body parts everywhere. A head here, a leg there, an arm over there. It was by far the worst on the right flank of the regiment. The whole place was a swamp dotted with pools of filthy water. The dugouts were either smashed by artillery fire or filled with mud. It was simply impossible to use the remnants of the trenches. Every man had to cut off half of his coat and make a jacket out of it. The lower sections had become so encrusted with filth and mud that they were simply too heavy to move about in. In order to sleep, there was no alternative but to sit on a bulk of timber with the upper body covered by a ground sheet. The only consolation was that it was every bit as bad for those opposite. It was just as bad for those across the killing zones in the mud. And for the French 6th and 10th armies, the mud and rain began slowing the pace and scale of operations. Inevitably, the big push was winding down. For the French 10th Army, the weather delayed local line-straightening operations until November 7th. From here, company and battalion attacks went on as small and unnamed trouble spots were attacked in the sea of mud that was the Santerre Plain that autumn. Over the next few days, larger operations by General Michelet's Poilus saw the capture of Bois-Cratz and the village of Prassois. The much-contested village of Ablancourt was finally taken and consolidated. Fighting over La Maisonnette continued, as well as over several other hotspots. On the 13th of November, the Germans began plastering Pressoir with shells. It was the beginning of a two-day bombardment, and the bombardment was the prelude to a counterattack. The German media back home was stretching the minor victory at La Maisonnette for all it was worth and more. 
they needed to show any kind of victory after the stinging losses of Fort Dumont at Verdun and Tiepval up to the north. And doubtless, another little win could be made to look like a big one. But it was not to be. The Germans launched their attack on the 15th of November. English language information on the battle is practically non-existent. Other than that, we know that uh, the attack failed. The conditions were no doubt as miserable as elsewhere on the Somme. It was during these days that the French 10th Army shut down its operations on the Somme and settled into the muddy and water-filled trenches for the long winter of 1916 to 1917. For the gaunt, hollow-eyed, half-starved, and half-frozen poilus on the ground, the only major change was that there would be no further massive attacks that year. Everything else, the daily shelling, the trench raids, the daily wastage of the French nation's manhood, would remain the same. The war was an insatiable machine, ever grinding. The grinding machine was at work in General Emile Fayol's French 6th Army on the north bank of the Somme. As the gray and sodden October days oozed into gray and sodden November, the muddy slugfest for Saïe-Saïzel continued. The French here were showing real military skill as they relentlessly fought to liberate the brick piles that used to be the village. French lieutenants and captains were leading and making on-the-spot decisions according to the situations they faced. Keeping weapons clean and operational was a priority in the awful conditions, and no French Beffin was allowed to slack. The Furie Française was in full effect. When one unit's weapons did inevitably jam, the troops threw rocks at the oncoming Germans. It wasn't all positive, however. Here, as elsewhere in our battlefront, the Somme was, as Commandant Kortz later said, quote, the artillery battle par excellence, the artillery battle in all its horror, a deluge of fire in the middle of a quagmire, end quote. On the 5th of November, at General Fayol's insistence, an attack on the eastern side of Saïs-Saïzel was launched in conjunction with an attack on the bois saint pierre The attack was launched in the middle of awful weather, and accordingly, there was little to show for it. The French and Germans continued to batter each other until the 12th, when mud-encrusted and exhausted poilus clawed the ruins from their equally exhausted Frontschwein foes. The German command could not let that stand. A counterattack was ordered, and on the night of 14th through the 15th of November, it was launched. The Germans succeeded in taking back part of the village, and things would have to be left there for the time being. Even with counterattacks like the one just described, both sides were waiting for the campaign season to be over. The trenches were so waterlogged that it was not uncommon for the enemies to sit on their respective parapets on days of weak sunshine to try and dry out, with each leaving the other alone in his misery. The more time the men spent in the muddy stew of broken trees and rotting meat, the more their morale sank. When Unteroffizier Feuge and his company were relieved from shell holes near Saïs Saïzel, he recalled, Our spirits were not exactly high, we were too hungry, thirsty, and tense for that. But we were certainly relieved. French Captain Tristani of the 32e Regiment d'Infanterie wrote of facing defeat as he led his quote-unquote living rags out of the line. We suffered a rude check despite our hopes for success. We get the impression that battle is no longer possible in this mud field. No one is happy. Losses have been suffered for no appreciable results. The French field armies settled in for petty war. What Louis Bartas, a poilu, 
with the spirit of an incorrigible grognard, defined as, quote, in a war like this one, combat meant mostly being a target for shells. The best leader wasn't the cleverest tactician, but rather the one who knew best how to keep his men alive, end quote. North of the French Sixth Army, General Sir Henry Rawlinson's British Fourth Army. The focus was also on local line-straightening operations as well. For the most part, there were no big moves, except on the 5th of November, when Rawlinson ordered the 14th Corps' 50th Northumbrian Division to attack the Butte de Valencourt, with the Anzac Corps supporting by pushing on the enemy-held Gourd salient. The Butte de Valencourt is an anomaly in the rolling Picardy fields. At the time of the Battle of the Somme, it was a 50 to 60 foot high pimple of earth on the land. It was a mound originally built by the Romans, or at least thought to have been. It was the high point in the local area, and it sits past the village of Lesar on the D929 road, directly north of the Ocourt Labaye farm complex. In an otherwise featureless brown sea of shell-whipped mud, the Butte de Valencourt dominated the local area. Inside the mound were tunnels dating back to the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, to and the occupying Germans of 1914 then dug further in and reinforced everything with concrete. By November of 1916, the Butte heavily fortified itself and surrounded by trenches and fields of barbed wire, was an obstacle meant to be impossible to take. But the Northumbrians of the 50th Division were assigned just that very task. The Butte put German eyes on the River Ancre, and for the newly renamed British 5th Army, the one formerly known as the Reserve Army, to launch its constantly delayed operations to push along the Ancre, the Butte would have to be taken. The Germans were well aware of this and shelled the British frontline trenches opposite, such as they were, ceaselessly. Many British veterans of the Somme remembered that in reality, British artillery bombardments were generally much heavier than what the Germans put out. They frequently refer to a 4 to 1 ratio, where the Tommy gunners shot out four shells to every German one. But for those cold and soaked Tommies, curling up in their shell holes or sitting waist deep in ice cold waterlogged dugouts as iron screamed and shrieked down from the gray skies, this distinction likely proved no comfort. The 151st Brigade of the 50th Northumbrians made its way up to the front line in preparation for the attack. In the thigh-deep mud, this simple task was an utterly exhausting and epic feat of strength. Once the rain and sweat-soaked men made it to the jump-off positions, they now faced incoming Minenwerfer rounds and whiz-bangs, as well as the endless preparations needed to get ready for an attack. Facing the Butte for the assault were the 9th, 6th, and 8th Durhams. Because of the state of the ground, each battalion attacked in a one-company-wide front in order to stack the waves of troops one behind the other. The British bombardment went in, pounding the Butte and the area around it. Zero-hour approached as gale-force winds blasted the combatants of both sides with rain and cold. Zero, nine, ten. The guns lifted, the whistles blew, and in some places, the British struggled to get themselves out of their trenches. In the mud, it was impossible. Those who managed to get out had to reach down to help others out, all while the Germans hit them with artillery and long-range machine gun fire. The ninth Durhams were to take the Butte and the quarry next to it. To the right, the sixth and eighth Durham's were to assault the GERD and GERD support trenches. Lance Corporal Harry Crudus of the 6th Durham's was in the attack that day, 
and his account comes to us from Peter Hart's psalm. At last, the zero hour arrived and the officer's whistles sounded the advance. Immediately, the first wave mounted the trench and made off in the direction of the enemy trenches. They were met by terrific and annihilating fire and crumpled up like snow in summer. The second wave was by this time on its way. I was in that wave and placed my gun sections in single file to make a less target. The enemy barrage was doing enormous damage and our fighting strength was fast diminishing. The heavy fire drove the attack to the ground. Those wounded who fell into mud-filled shell holes found themselves facing horrible deaths as they slowly sank into the filth. Crudus and the remnants of his battalion found themselves stuck in no man's land. By the time the whole line was held up and Lieutenant Ludgate ordered me to proceed and engage the enemy machine guns, a task almost impossible, he said. Out of my two sections of 14, there were two of us left, a number one on the gun by the name of Private Allen and myself. I pushed on with one gun and a quantity of ammunition to about 30 yards from the German trench and took up a position in a shell hole. We opened fire on the opposing troops who formed an excellent target. In taking up my position, in the excitement, I placed myself on the right side of the gun instead of on the left, which was fortunate for me. After firing one or two magazines, the enemy found us with a machine gun and succeeded in wounding my number one in four places down his left side. Thinking him dead, I pushed him aside and carried on until want of ammunition forced me to withdraw to our troops in the rear. I took back my gun and spare parts and came in contact with an officer in another company to whom I made my report. A few minutes later, I saw my number one, who was out in front, lifting an arm in an appealing manner, and I knew he, whom I thought dead, was still alive. I immediately ran out in a zigzag method and brought him back to the shelter of the shell hole we were then manning. After tending to his wounds, we set about organizing and consolidating in preparation for a counterattack from the enemy. So, the German counterattack came at noontime less than three hours after the first assault was launched. By that time, the 9th Durham stormed the Butte de Valencourt, but the 6th and 8th battalions were stuck in front of the enemy's trenches. Fighting raged all afternoon as the embattled 9th Durhams struggled to hold their new gains. By 5 p.m., Lieutenant Colonel Roland Bradford, commander of the 9th, reported that his men had been pushed out of Gerd Trench, but that he had part of the Butte in his possession. The German counterattacks kept coming, even in the driving rain. Hand-to-hand -hand fighting ensued. British reinforcements could not make it up as German shells barred their way. The fighting went on into the darkness. Bradford reported that at, quote, about 11 p.m., Battalions of the Prussians delivered a fresh counterattack. They came in great force from our front and also worked round from both flanks. Our men were overwhelmed. Many died fighting. Others were compelled to surrender. It was only a handful of men who found their way back to Maxwell Trench, and they were completely exhausted by their great efforts and the strain of the fighting. End quote. The survivors of the 9th Durham's fell back to their starting positions. The other two battalions did the same. The 151st Brigade lost over a thousand men on the 5th of November for no territorial gain. The weather continued to remain so poor that in the following days there was little action. And on the 9th and 10th, Chris McCarthy reports in his absolutely essential book, The Psalm, the day-by-day -day account, that only, quote, mud prevented any movement, end quote. General Sir Henry Rawlinson now pushed to shut down the offensive for his fourth army. Haig disagreed with this view, and he was very much disappointed with his army commander for having it. Haig looked to the north, where his brother cavalry officer Goff was ready to make another push against the enemy. Rawlinson's lack of offensive spirit would not be forgotten. 
Rawlinson's move was the right one. The front was in no condition to support any type of offensive operations. The battlefield was a nightmare landscape. Lieutenant Marley of the 5th Durham's reported that in his sector, Snag Trench was full of mud and water with bodies sticking out all along. It is, in fact, no exaggeration when I say that in our part, we had to tread from body to body to get past. Dead from all regiments were there, including our division, South Africans, and jocks of the 9th Division. And hands, arms, and legs were sticking out of parados and parapet, where the dead had been hastily buried. For the British 4th Army, the Battle of the Somme, came to an end and the men settled in for their own petty war. It would be up to the 5th Army now if any further attacks were to take place. And they were. General Sir Hubert Goff's Reserve Army was christened the 5th Army at the end of October 1916. Shortly after this administrative change, Douglas Haig turned to Goff. He wanted his one last win before he had to go meet with the other Allied generals to discuss next year's strategy. With Rawlinson's failure to take the Butte de Rallancourt, it was Goff who would have to deliver the last victory. Goff was in a tight spot. I mean, really, are you going to tell your boss no? But as he was himself a rambling, gambling cavalryman, he was in support of another attack. Goff already had an attack in the works. It was just that the weather kept continuously pushing zero hour back day after day. The plan was to assault and seize beaumont Amel and Serre, villages that had eluded British arms since the 1st of July. Grabbing these two villages before winter set in would ensure the British were in good positions from which to launch new attacks next spring. Goff knew it was going to be a tough job, and he planned accordingly. Beginning in late October, specially focused heavy artillery targeted all known German dugouts and reinforced machine gun posts for complete destruction. The Germans were also pummeled with artillery all along the line every morning without fail, a pattern being established so that they would be lulled into a routine. Gas was shot over as well, so that it would seep down into those dugouts that remained. As one day of November ran into another and the rain continued, the Germans began to believe that the awful weather was likely bringing an end to the battle. Behind them, German First Army Commander General Fritz von Belov believed that any attack that might come could be defeated. All of this was exactly what Goff hoped the Germans would believe. Some British troops believed it too, however. On the 12th, after a period of no rainfall, 44,000 Tommies from five infantry divisions moved up to the line for the attack. It was scheduled for the next morning, the 13th of November. From south to north, the divisions in the attack were the 19th Western, the 39th Division opposite the hamlet of Saint-Pierre-de-Villon, the 63rd Royal Naval Division opposite Beaucourt Village, the 51st Highland Division facing beaumont Amel, back after its ordeal at Highwood, and the 2nd Division facing Redon Ridge north of beaumont Amel. On the extreme right flank, the 4th Canadian Division was going to push past Regina Trench and take Desire Trench. To the far north, the 3rd and 31st Divisions would provide flank support. The guns went off as usual, plowing and churning the muddy soil and village ruins along the 8,000-yard attack front. At 0545, as planned, the guns lifted and the Tommies of the 5th Army went over the top. The Battle of the Ancre, the last battle within the big push on the Somme, began. The men of the 19th Division pushed towards the village of Grand Corps, far, but not too far away. The men of the 39th 
raced towards Saint-Pierre-de-Villon, a hamlet north of Tipval that lay between Grandcourt and Altui on the D-4151 road. The Germans had several trench lines between the British and the little collection of ruined houses. Saint-Pierre-de-Villon lay on the south bank of the river Ongre, and along the banks the Germans had dug a system of underground shelters called the Tunnel. Protected by marshy ground through which an attack would surely fail, the tunnel featured deep dugouts and tunnels that could withstand anything the British pounded them with. Edmund Blunden, a member of the 11th Sussex, was there. Our own part was subsidiary, he wrote in his memoir, Undertones of War, and the main blow was to be struck northward toward Grandcourt and beaumont Amel. Struck it was in the shabby, clammy morning of November 13. That was a feat of arms vying with any recorded. The enemy was surprised and beaten. From Tipval Wood, battalions of our division sprang out, past our old dead, mud craters and wire, and took the tiny village of Saint-Pierre-de-Villon with its enormous labyrinth and almost 2,000 Germans in the galleries there. To the 39th Division's left was the 63rd Royal Naval Division, assigned to take the village of Bocor and the surrounding area. Before we rush headlong into the action, we need to take a moment to discuss this particular unit. The Royal Naval Division. So, at the beginning of the war, the Royal Navy found itself with twenty to 30,000 extra men and not enough ships to put them all in. It was decided to make some naval infantry and marine units out of them, and thus was born the 63rd Royal Naval Division. The division served briefly in Belgium in 1914, where it arrived woefully ill-equipped and wound up losing 1,500 men who had to hightail it into Holland to avoid capture by the Germans. Those men sat out the war in Holland as prisoners of war. The division refitted and shipped off for the Gallipoli campaign, and when it returned to France in 1916, there were hardly any sailors left. The battalions within the 63rd were not numbered. Rather, they were named after British sea commanders, Hawk, Drake, Nelson, etc., Not only was it unorthodox in this way, but its officers clung tightly to Royal Navy traditions and did their best to resist army mandates and doctrine. What made this more difficult was that the Royal Naval Division, while a part of the Navy, was commanded by Army General Cameron Tiger Shute. Tiger Shute didn't appreciate the naval traditions of the men under his command, and he fought to squash them. As a result, the Navy men under him hated his guts, to the point that Lieutenant A.P. Herbert, a writer and future member of Parliament, wrote a poem aimed directly at Shute. And of course, I will have to read it here for you. Shute wasn't all bad. He was just an army guy and a disciplinarian. When the division was in Arras, they took over some trenches from Portuguese troops. And he was incensed when he discovered that trench latrines weren't being properly managed. His rage had a point. If some disease broke out, the combat effectiveness of the division could be severely hampered. But thus came these lines. The general inspecting the trenches exclaimed with a horrified shout, I refuse to command a division which leaves its excreta about. But nobody took any notice, no one was prepared to refute, that the presence of shit was congenial compared to the presence of shoot. And certain responsible critics made haste to reply to his words, observing that his staff advisors consisted entirely of turds. For shit may be shot at odd corners, and paper supplied there to suit, but a shit would be shot without mourners if somebody shot that shit shoot. So, that was the kind of unit 
the 63rd was. They broke rules. But now they were in the line, going over the top and lunging towards Bocor. And they meant to get after it. Bocor sur l'Ancre sits east of beaumont amel and was strongly defended. It sat behind three trench lines, and the village itself was worked into a fourth line. Beyond Bocor lay Grandcourt and Miromont, which could provide supporting fires. The 63rd's forward saps were 150 to 250 yards away from the enemy's first line, but they would be attacking uphill. On the division's 1,200-yard front, the 1st Royal Marines, the Howe, Hawk, and Hood battalions were in the first wave. Once they secured their objectives, a second wave would pass through them and attack the second line. The first wave would then attack the third line, and the second wave would then pass through to the fourth line. This was a pretty complex action to be undertaken, but the strongly disliked General Shute had put his men through their training paces. Shute had commanded a corps at Guillemont and knew what his misfit sailor soldiers faced, and he wanted them to succeed. Ordinary seaman Joe Murray was part of the assaulting Hood Battalion on that morning, and he recalled the opening bombardment. At 5.45, all the watches were synchronized. Bang, bang, bang. All of a sudden, behind us, the whole sky was red. Immediately afterwards, you could hear the shells going over your head, and really and truly, you could almost feel the shells. Then you heard the sound. The light was first. The shell was next. And then the sound. There was a lot of them falling short. We expected them to be shelled by Jerry, but we didn't expect to be shelled by our own men. But you knew by the thrust which way they were coming. You knew they were your own because they were coming forward. But at the same time, you know, were it not for the artillery barrage, we'd all have been slaughtered and we wouldn't have advanced at all. So it was the lesser of two evils. First wave clambered up over their parapets in the misty dark and headed towards the enemy lines. It was to be a mixed success. In the center, the Howe and Hawk battalions came under heavy fire from German positions in their first and second lines. The Hawk battalion was practically wiped out in short order. On the right, with the River Ancre itself as their unit boundary, the Hood battalion took the first line as per the attack schedule. On the left, the Royal Marines only made it to the enemy front line in small groups under he- heavy fire, although they did link up with the Highlanders to their left. Because of the center battalions going to ground, the Royal Naval Division's attack began to quickly show cracks. In the chaos, blood, and shrieks under the gray November dawn, the plan was rapidly fraying. Into the battlefield, now stepped Lieutenant Colonel Bernard Freyberg, commander of the Hood Battalion. Having led his men to seize the Bocor rail station on the German second line, he saw that to his left, things were about to fall apart completely. So at over six feet in height, weighing some 225 pounds and built like a brick outhouse, he walked back out onto the battlefield and took charge of what remained of the shattered battalions around him. When he met his chief petty officer, Tobin, Gerald Glidden writes in VCs of the First World War, the Psalm 1916, that Freiburg reportedly said, Hello, Tobin. I think we will get a VC today. Bocor could not be taken on the 13th. Freiburg, in the thick of it, organized new British trenches and dug in for the night as the BEF gunners shelled the ruins of the place. The next morning, he personally led an assault on Bocor. The British bombardment had been ineffective, but after a strong start, the Germans inside the ruins came out en masse and surrendered to the Tommies rushing in. Tanks assisted in clearing out Bocor Redoubt, and the village fell to the 63rd Royal Naval Division. Freyberg, already hit twice by 9 a.m., stayed in charge to reorganize the consolidation phase on the other side of Bocor. The Germans retaliated against the loss by slamming heavy artillery shells into the ruins, and Lieutenant Colonel Freyberg was hit for a third time. This time it was shrapnel in the neck, and he was forced to leave the battlefield. 
Freiburg was awarded his Victoria Cross 14 months later. To the left of the 63rd Division, the 51st Highland faced the village of Beaumont-Amel. Beaumont-Amel would be a challenge. The village sits where a handful of uplands join together, and at the south end of the village lay the infamous Y Ravine, with its many dugouts. Beaumont-Amel was in ruins, of course, but that made it a great place in which the Germans could hide dozens of men with machine guns and rifles. Underneath the ruins, there was a warren of caves where hundreds of Germans could shelter from the firestorm. Like Tiger Shute, however, the commander of the 51st, a Major General Harper, had seen to it that his men were properly trained and ready. At zero hour on the 13th, north of Beaumont-Amel on the Hawthorne Ridge, a second mine crater was blown at the crater of the first one from back in July. A second shaft had been dug under the enemy's lines undetected, and British clay kickers had packed it with 13,000 pounds of ammonal. The charge was sent, and in the dark tunnel inside the earth, the explosives went off. In a flash, 300 Germans were killed instantly. But there was no delay this time. Men of the 5th Seaforth Highlanders stormed their way across the devastated no-man's land and seized the crater. South of Beaumont-Amel, the 6th Black Watch stormed with equal zest the Y Ravine after it had been pounded by the British guns. It took five hours, but Y Ravine fell. Beaumont-Amel saw a full day of fighting for its ruins. The removal of Hawthorne Ridge and Y Ravine on either flank left the village unsupported for the Germans. They still fought it out, but the capture of a German map showing the location of two battalion headquarters helped break the defense. By dark on the evening of the 13th, the ruins of Beaumont-Amel were in British hands. Any movement past the village could not be made, as the 63rd Division on the right was held up, leaving the 51st's right flank in the air, as troops at the time called it. Over the next few days, the Highlanders tried to expand on their victory, but the going was rough. When they marched out of the line on the 17th, they could look back at a successful assault on Beaumont-Amel and the capture of 2,000 prisoners, a sign the Germans were worn out. The victory, of course, did not come without costs. In particular, the Shetland Islands community suffered heavily when 19 of the small island community's sons were killed while serving with the 51st Division. A further 22 of the Shetland Territorials were wounded, and the remaining men of the two companies mustered for the war were disbanded and dispersed into the 7th Gordon Highlanders. North of Beaumont-Amel, Hawthorne, and Redon Ridges, the attacks by the 2nd and 31st Divisions failed. Tommies of the 2nd Division faced the quadrilateral redoubt, another one, that remained untaken at the end of the day. Attacks on Serre failed again, leaving the hamlet out of reach until their retreat to the Hindenburg Line the following February. The signal to go over was a mine going up, a Sergeant Sibley, a machine gunner with the 2nd Division, remembered. The morning was very foggy, Good job for us, too, as Fritz didn't expect us. We collared some of them asleep, and some without boots on. We got the first three lines easy, but had to fight mighty hard for the rest. The ground was awful. Lots of our fellows got stuck in the mud, and we had to leave them there to die. It was at this quadrilateral where the writer H.H. Monroe was killed. Known to history as Saki, and the author of many short stories, among them The Storyteller, which I read in high school and never forgot. Monroe was an NCO in the 22nd Royal Fusiliers. As he and his men were consolidating a position under observation by the enemy, he cursed at one of his men to, quote, put that bloody cigarette out. The smoker had just given their position away. No sooner had Monroe hissed his words when a sharpshooter's bullet found him and killed him. One life less, one world less, too.
to paraphrase George Orwell. Fighting continued through the next few days, through rain and cold. It was attack and counterattack, all for local hotspots. The quadrilateral fell on the 15th. There were Germans still in Schwaben Redoubt somehow, and the last of them were eliminated on the 15th. The Germans counterattacked with flamethrowers but were then shot to pieces. The 51st and 2nd Divisions threw some infantry companies at the next objective, Frankfurt Trench, but they too were in turn shot to pieces by their own artillery and then the enemy's machine guns. Tanks used during these days more often than not found themselves stuck in the mud, causing more headaches than hurrahs. We come now to the final attack of the Battle of the Ongre, and thus the final attack of the Battle of the Somme. In this uniquely devastated landscape of, in Edmund Blunden's own words, sluggish, soaking mists or cold, stinging wind, which loaded the air and spirit of man, a place where the ruins of the world look black and unalterable, the wet and exhausted soldiers on either side of the tenuous shell-hold and body-filled no-man's land were done with the battle. They hoped it was over. But General Goff had one more attack planned, this one for the 18th. The 2nd and 5th Corps would be throwing elements of five infantry divisions in an assault designed to clear the southern bank of the River Ancre and take Frankfurt Trench beyond the recently captured villages. The weather did all it could to ensure all of the participants would remember it as a miserable affair. On the night prior to the attack, it began to snow, the first snow of the season. As the morning crept towards zero hour, the snow turned into driving sleet and rain. The battlefield was enveloped in a thick mist that reduced visibility to mere meters. If you have ever visualized the Western Front as a gloomy, muddy, and utterly ruined landscape, the Yonkre on the morning of the 18th of November, 1916, was just like that. 6.10 a.m., zero hour. The barrage opens, and simultaneously with the opening bars, our lads go right away. Jerry was late with his barrage, and our boys are on the other side of it, but nothing can be seen of them as a very heavy mist is lying close to the ground. Worried looks are the general run of the first hour, Private Crude of the 7th East Kent's related at the time. On the right of this last assault, the 4th Canadian Division attacked Desire and Desire Support trenches. They managed to grab most of Desire Support while taking some 620 Germans prisoner. On the 18th Division's front, where Private Crude and his East Kents were, the attacking Tommies pushed forward through the mist and the muck. But gains there were limited, because on their flank the 19th Division's assault failed. On the 19th Division's front, the 8th North Staffords broke through the German front line, only to find themselves quickly cut off and surrounded. The 10th Warwicks lost their way in the featureless fog and terrain, but they got it together, and a few men managed to break into Grancourt village. They didn't last, and Grancourt could not be taken. Frankfurt and Munich trenches just northeast of beaumont mel were attacked as planned. It was a similar story here, though, where the British broke into the trenches violently, but soon found themselves cut off by a resurgent enemy. At the end of the day, no gains were made. At the end of the day, only the Canadians on the far right had made any noticeable gains, and even these were small. General Haig issued orders to stop any further attacks. In this weather and in these horrific conditions, there was no good in pushing any more attacks forward. Haig wasn't too moved by the plight of his soldiers wallowing and literally drowning in mud. It was just that any further offensives would achieve nothing. So it came to be that on the 18th of November, 1916, the British Expeditionary Force ended all further operations on the Somme. The 
French 6th and 10th armies down the line had already done the same within the past few days. The Battle of the Ancre was over, and with it, the Battle of the Somme was also over. Casualties for the BEF for November were around 40,000 men killed, wounded, taken prisoner, and missing. The French army lost approximately 20,000 poilus in the same time frame. On the other side, the Germans bled out another 45,000 men, at least 7,000 of which were prisoners taken between the 13th and the 18th near the Ancre. Even this last month of desperate and exhausted fighting saw the loss of over 100,000 sons of Britain and her empire, France and Germany. But it was over. 141 days of bloodletting on an inconceivable and mind-bending scale had come to an end. There is an aftermath to be discussed. There are casualty counts and gains and losses and what it was all for and what it all meant. That, however, will be for the next and very last episode of the psalm here on the BFWWP. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or talk to me on the Twitter at, at WW1podcast. You can also go through the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.